And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast. Brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Yes, now we are talking, folks. Yes, indeed. Another fine introduction by our announcer, Larry Babb, for another fine episode of The Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. My name is David Steele, and you have tuned into a fine one today. Uh, today, we reach back into the archives for a talk that our old friend Henry Astor did with the late, great Vic Edelbrock Jr. As is usually the case with me anyway, people are always older than I think. And, and I was honestly surprised to learn that Vic was in his 80s. Uh, just such a youthful guy, so full of energy, always on the go, always going somewhere to race one of his amazing vintage race cars. And, um, you know, and it also, it had not been that long since we'd last seen him. And he just uh, gave no indication that he was having any issues and um, so yeah obviously our our thoughts and support go out to the Edelbrock family and to all of Vic's friends uh, throughout the hot rod and racing world now although I I had the great pleasure of meeting and being around Vic here and there over the years I could never really say that I knew him that well um, but that said it certainly didn't stop him from always treating me as if I was a friend and uh two stories that came to mind for me during the days around his passing. Um, well, one would be uh, the amazing experience I had of getting to attend the life celebration that Vic had, had thrown at the Edelbrock facility for Bobby Meeks. I mean, talk about something that I'll never forget. For a hot rod historian like myself and general fan of all these great pioneers, it was it's like going to the Oscars of hot rodding. <laughs> I mean, every single hot rod icon imaginable was there. Art Chrisman, Ed Pink, Tommy Sparks, Louis Center, Nick Arias, Iski, Alex Exidius, um, on and on. And Vic Jr. hosted this thing so beautifully. He had one old friend of Bobby's after another get up and share memories. And it's just one of those more fun things I've ever been to, which probably sounds strange, but uh, that was the magic of it. Uh, it truly was this great celebration, you know, that almost bordered on a roast at times, of course, with all the stories. And But, you know, that was because of the spirit that Vic Jr. brought to this gathering for a man that, you know, probably knew Vic, you know, since the very day he was born. I mean, uh, Bobby Meek certainly went back that far with the, with the Edelbrock family. So, that was a that's a memory that I that I hold dear and uh, and it told me a lot about Vic Jr. and the Edelbrock family. But you know the other story I have involving Vic to me almost says more about him, um, and that's because it it was a situation where I was not with a fellow hot rod pioneer or friend of his, and and so you know therefore by association I must be okay. Um, you know, this was a situation where I was just another race fan uh, who happened upon his big red 
racing rig in the pits at Watkins Glen in 1998. Actually, this was uh, it was the the fall vintage meet at the Glen, a really historic one. It was the marking of the 50th anniversary of the running of the race, and it was an amazingly cool thing and will forever be one of my favorite car events I've ever attended. Uh, they were rerunning in a sort of hot parade lap sort of way, the original street circuit through the town and up through the hills above. And because it was 98, there were still some of the original cars and drivers from the original street races that showed up. Uh, folks like John Fitch, Phil Walters, Bill Milliken, uh, Denver Cornette was there who had raced in the very first race in 1948 in his MGTC, which he still owned and still had there on that day. Um, Denise McCluggage, Sterling Moss. I mean, it was just crazy. But so they did this rerunning of the street race, doing a few laps with just the cars and drivers in attendance who'd been there in those early days. And then they, they opened it up to the groups of historic cars that were going to be running, you know, at the current track over the weekend um, for the historic meet. And this is when I saw and heard the uh, the original Washburn Chevrolet uh, Z06 Corvette Coupe coming down Main Street through the little town of Watkins Glen. And I realized I'd get to see that car run that weekend with, with Vic Jr. behind the wheel. And uh, I, I got to say, I mean, how damn cool of him to put such an important and historic car back on the track where it belongs so people can see it and hear it doing, you know, the things that it was uh, was made to do. So anyway, later that weekend, I found myself walking the pits in, in Paddock and I see the big Edelbrock transporter uh, off in the distance, pretty easy thing to spot. And uh, I made my way over there really just to see the old Washburn car up close. And But I got a whole lot more of an experience than just that. Uh, there was Vic Jr. and some of his crew and they were hanging, they were like hanging around in a way that only a team with a fully sorted car can on a, on a race weekend. They just, you know, they're just waiting for their time to go out in their group. And so, you know, they all had drinks in hand and were talking and visiting with everybody that walked by. And I don't know how they did it. I mean, but they made that big red and chrome race transporter, this, you know, two-story, you know, almost NASCAR-level race transporter, feel like a campsite, you know, set up by a local MG racer. I mean, it was amazing. There was Vic answering questions about the car and offering people drinks. And I mean, it was so friendly and warm at that pit area. And Vic was happy to share any and all information about the car that people were interested in. You could, you could really tell that he loved having that car and that it was a special thing for him. You know, and this from a guy who built a business into such a success that, you know, he had the means to own a lot of cars and, and cars even more expensive and impressive than, than that Corvette. But I think maybe the fact that it was a California car that he got to see race when he was a young guy. And now here he was getting to experience what his heroes did. It, it, it just showed me how much of a real deal and regular, you know, just regular car guy he really was. And, um, Speaking of Vic Jr. and what he built that business into, I, I won't tell on the old Hot Rod Pioneer who said this in front of me, but I like this story and I think it bears repeating uh, the subject of 
Vic Jr. came up and with this person and um, and for the record, this is a guy who was buddies with Vic Sr. and was of his age group. And uh, anyway, I was asking him what what it was like back in the day, what people thought when uh, Vic Jr. was suddenly thrown the keys to this company, you know, completely by surprise when his his dad had passed in the early 60s. And without hesitation, uh, this this old hot rod guy said, well, we all thought that was the end of the company. You know, all we knew about Junior was that he was this good looking kid with blonde hair who we always saw driving around in a new Corvette. I mean, we we didn't really know him and we didn't realize how much time he'd been spending with his dad and how much time he had spent working and how well he understood that business and the community that was supporting it. So he went on and he, to say, he said, we all thought, you know, that Vic Sr. was the company. And uh, boy, oh boy, did Junior prove us wrong. I mean, he turned that business into something his dad could have never imagined. So uh, I'm just hoping that some of these guys, uh, like that guy I got to talk to, who were friends with Vic Sr., expressed this to his son that accomplished so much for his great family name. Um, I have a feeling they did, and uh, I have a feeling that it was it was those kinds of thumbs up that that would have meant the most to him. So, anyway, with that, let's now take a listen in to our interview with Vic Edelbrock Jr. You ready? Yep. Okay, I was born on August twenty third, nineteen thirty six, in Los Angeles. So I'm a native. And can you just describe to me your, your first ever memory? Well, I was, you know, I was raised from day one in it, and, uh, you know, I, I kind of always wanted to beat around with my dad when I was like three or four years old, and I was around the shop, and I even have a thumbnail here that's very weird looking because he, he got through grinding on a grinder, and I went up with my finger and stuck it in there to stop it and lost about half my thumb, uh, and a lot of, a lot of different stories, but I, I was just always wanted to get around what he was doing. You know, when I was 12 years old, I used to go to his place in, in Highland Boulevard, 1200 North Highland, and I would uh, work for $2 a day. And I thought that was great. When that clock would go around, I was $2 richer. And I would just do things, you know, put screw, screw screws into a coupler or, or little stuff like that or paint a wall or whatever. But I just loved to be there. My summers were always there. Uh, clear up into when I was in high school, uh, I did that and through college. Uh, all my holidays, instead of going to the beach, I work, worked at my dad's place. How did he get, give me a little history of how he got started in the automotive industry or the speed shop? Well, my dad was a, was a real hands-on car guy, but in those days when he was in Kansas, there, there was nothing really going on. One of the things that was going on, it was the farmers were buying Model A Fords and uh, Model T's, and he... They wouldn't want to drive them over the, over the rough roads to get them there. So my father would do that. And even though it was only like a 40-mile trip from Kansas City uh, to where the farms were, he lived, he lived in Endura, Kansas, uh, half the stuff would fall off the car. So my dad had to be very mechanically inclined and able to bolt it back on again and get it, and get it there. So he kind of went from that. And then when the Depression happened, he left Kansas and and uh, he only went through the ninth grade because his father's uh, store burnt down 
and all three, his other two brothers and himself had to quit school and go to work to support the family. And then in the, in the early days of the Depression, he left uh, Kansas and went out to Los Angeles with one, one brother, and the other brother was all, already there, was working for Bank of America. And my dad was able to get a job working on the cars for $2 a day. That's maybe the, how I got that, got that uh, uh, kind of wage. And uh, he was very happy to get it. Well, I'm sure there was, uh, you know, and it, but it, with the Depression, it took a while for everything to settle to where they had enough money to get even a little better car. And uh, my dad was a very hard, devoted man in, in, his, in his work, and he serviced cars. That's what he was doing. And I think off of that, uh, I, I know that he had a, I think he had a Chrysler convertible that was probably be a very valuable car today if he still had it. And, uh, and so that, you had to have something with like that, you're pretty sporty and, and going around. And, uh, and he bought, he got into the 32 uh, in the mid-30s. Mid uh, it was a family car for he and my mother who were married uh, just before that. And I came along in 36 and I remember, uh, and when I was three years old, laying across the seat, the, the seat when they go to a party and coming home and I wanted to go to sleep. I fit that way, but when you look in a 32, it's not very long or very wide. And uh, and then you know he got going, and he he kind of went around for various. He wouldn't take a whole garage, but he'd take part of it, uh, and uh, behind a gas station. And uh, he was over at Third and La Brea, and I know when my mother. Uh, this was uh, uh, before the war. My mother would haul me at three or four years old. We'd walk from Adams and, 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 uh, and uh, La Brea all the way down to 3rd and La Brea, which I don't know how many miles it was, but I thought it was a whole bunch because I didn't, wasn't prepared to walk that way to go down there and take my dad his dinner at night because he was still working at night. And of course, we'd get a ride back, so we didn't have to walk back. But uh, What kind of jobs was he, who was he working for? Was he working for just normal customers? Was he working for people who were racing the lake? Well, no, he was working for people, normal customers, bring their car in and do service work. And then from that, he had enough money that he could, you know, get into, get into things with the Roadster. And he started racing at the lakes in 1938. And when he did, everybody shunned the V8 uh, flathead Ford engine because it really wasn't ever intended for that. Henry made it because it was cheaper to make and uh, he could put it in all his cars. And so my dad was stubborn enough that he was going to make that V8 uh, uh, flathead motor run. And they were running against the four-cylinder uh, Chevrolets in line. And uh, he, he, he showed them that he could do it. Started it at, I got his first trophy, and it's like 88 or 90, oh, it was 93, 94 miles an hour. And uh, three years later, 1941, he ran almost 122 mile an hour with the same basic setup except he had created more horsepower in his engine and was able to run that fast. What was he doing to his engine and to that, the flathead that, uh, that other people weren't? I mean, to... Well, they were, uh, uh, he made a manifold. He made a manifold in like 1939. He started off with Tommy Thixton and, and, and joint ventured a manifold with him. And for some reason they split apart and uh, 
my dad made what he called, what we called slingshot manifold, because it's two-piece. If you don't like it, you take the top off, which is Y-shaped, and use it as a slingshot. So uh, with that, uh, I, the manifold design was superior to what was out there. Uh, he was one of the first to convert to menthol. A flathead had a tremendous problem with detonation, so you couldn't really go high in compression because uh, it, it just it would destroy the engine. So uh, they didn't have aluminum heads before the war, so they bought the iron heads that came on a Denver engine, they called it, flathead engine, where the compression was at least a point higher than what the standard flathead uh, cast iron heads were. They would take those, my father would go in and have them welded, and then he would create his own combustion chamber that I believe had some tricks of his own in it. And, and my father was one that read a lot of books, and he was, he was a self-made engineer, had a, had a real knack for, for automotive engines and how to make them run. Uh, with the methanol, with that higher compression, and uh, I'm sure at that time, Ed Winfield was making cams, and my dad was a very close friend of his, so I'm sure they had something in that department that was a little different and better than what was out there. And he had one of the fastest Ford flatheads in a, in a roaster. And, and while all this was going on, this was still a family car. Up until 1941, my dad bought a six-cylinder Chevrolet. Uh, but when it was the family car, the fenders would bolt on and off, the running boards and that, and he'd take all that off, he tow it behind a pickup truck up to the dry lake beds, race it, then tow it back, and then put all the fenders and stuff back on, and it was back to the family car again. So that was uh, that was something. And of course, we have that car now, and it's like he ran it in 1941, three weeks before Pearl Harbor, when he ran 122. We made it exactly like that. What was he working? Well, actually, going back to Ed Winfield. I don't know how they met, but I know that I used to go over with my dad when he'd pick up camshafts. And Ed was kind of reclusive at those days. He, he, was, he was into making the Winfield carburetor, and then one day he got tired of that. And when you went in his building, all these carburetors were sitting on these multiple drill presses just when he said stop, and nothing ever moved since after that. Uh, but he was a very, very intelligent man, and, and I would go in with my dad, and I could see all this stuff. And I know he was doing he was doing testing on a two-cycle diesel at the time, which was 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 new, new theory. And he was that kind of guy. But he, uh, uh, my dad, being my dad was as good as he was with with his knowledge. That's why I think he worked real well with Ed because Ed's knowledge was was way up there. And and I know that uh, later on, when after the war, when I go over to pick up camshafts, even though I'd been in his building. I didn't get to go in. You'd just open, knock on the door, a little door, man door would open, slide out the wooden boxes with camshafts in it. I'd sign the ticket, take it, put them in the pickup truck, and I was gone. So that's a way, kind of the way it was. But he was, just the little bit I was around him was, was a tremendous thing to, to uh, have been that close to him. Did, and I'm assuming 1941, there was a little Ed Iskandarian sweeping in the corner somewhere, was he? Well, Ed Eskandarian, as far as my father is concerned, didn't really show up until after the war. And uh, it was actually um, in, the, in, the late, in the mid to late 40s. My father bought this gas station in Hollywood, 1200 North Highland, which was an associated gas station, and stayed there until 1948. 
then built a 5,000 square foot building uh, near the intersection of uh, Jefferson and La Brea. It was on Jefferson, 4921 West Jefferson. And Caddy Corner across from there was a, a little tiny building that was divided four ways on, on the bottom floor, it had a second floor to it. And one of those cubicles was at Escondaria. And uh, that's the way they got to know each other. And then when my father came with the 404 cam idea, he went to Harmon and Collins, which was the big cam grinder in those days. And they looked at it and they said, Vic, we're not going to grind it for you because it won't work. And then he didn't tell my dad that. My dad said, I just want one to run it and see what it does. No, it won't do it. So my dad gets back. He sees Escondarian. And they had talked, and he knew it was over there. Goes over and says, would you grind me this cam? Well, Ed would have ground you a cam upside down. He didn't, whatever you wanted, you got. So he did. My dad put it in the flathead, ran it. It ran good, took it back and said, now start selling this cam because this works. And that was really one of the things that put Ed Escondarian on the, on the, on the real right up there was the 404 cam, which everybody would run, whether you were drag racing the dry lake days or whatever. That was it. Well, the, the Berardini brothers ran it, and then didn't Gina Lacoste actually had a car, a drag car called the 404. Right, which, uh, right. And, and, all the records and then Jazzy Nelson on his car, if you looked on the side, there was Edelbrock and Escondarian, and of course that had the 404 in it. What, um, what happened in 19, between 1941 and 46 when Edelbrock... My, my father, uh, uh, at first was exempt from the war for medical reasons. And so he worked at a, a war-type machine shop. And then at nights, he worked at the shipyards. And he would weld inside the uh, pontoons. And about four guys would go in there, and they'd weld overhead and vertical and that at once. And uh, so he, my dad was running two jobs to do that. Uh, and uh, at the latter part of the war, he was going to be drafted. But when the war ended, uh, they didn't take him. Uh, at the time the war ended, that's when he, I was in the back seat with he and my mom, and they drove up on this associated gas station on, on, on Highland near Hollywood, in Hollywood. And my dad uh, said, that's the one I want to, we should buy that. We got enough money to buy it. And it was uh, like three-stall, three-stall garage, doors on it, and then a little tiny office, a little tiny room behind it. And then outside the office was the lube rack where, the, where you would lube cars, and it had two two pumps. So my dad at first kept the gas station going for oh, probably maybe a year, but he got so busy with the other stuff. And out of that facility, he was running at first his midget in 1946, when the number seven Curtis Craft built. And he was running that with a V860. And he raced like places like the, the Rose Bowl had a track in it that you raced in. And, uh, and then in 1947, he decided to run two cars, an Offie and a Ford. They had two circuits. Offie, of course, couldn't run, uh, you couldn't run a V860 with the Offies because it's the superior power of the Offie. And so um, he, was, he did this for one season, starting in uh, uh, Memorial Day and ending uh, probably the 1st of October. He would race both these midgets. Wednesday night, the V860 at Balboa Stadium in San Diego. Thursday night, the famous Gilmore track with the Offie. Friday night, the Orange Bowl in San Bernardino with the Offie. Saturday night, the V860 uh, at Bakersfield, and then at times he would go all the way up to Fresno and race. Then come back, keep his business running, fix the cars, keep them running. He only did it for one season, and he made good money. Um, Where did he sleep? 
Pardon? When did he speak? Uh, in between. And, and of course, there was no freeways then. When you went from when you went from L.A. to San Diego, that was a, a, a four-hour-plus drive, period. So, yeah. In, uh, in interviewing Alex Gideon, he would come back on Leaves from the Wall, and he told me a story. He would go down to Edelbrock for Dad's review, and then he would see what he was doing, and he would write, you know, I don't know how much drama is involved in the story, but he would write about what, Edel, what Edelbrock Jr. was doing, and he would sort of get excited. I mean, I'm just, please give me a picture of, who was coming in these young kind of hot rodders hungry for what your dad was making and what his new manifold ahead was going to be? Well, you know, it was, hot rodding was such a unique thing then. Uh, it didn't take, if you did bright and you made good product, it didn't take long to become famous. And that's just where my dad was. And, and he, he would have people like Ray Brown, uh, Ray Brown Automotive. He eventually made seat belts and he went to work as a as a, a executive vice president for Superior Industries and Make Wheels. And Ray would, Ray would go over there, and Ray, you know, Ray tells the story that, that he, my dad's main competitor was Eddie Myers, and Eddie Myers was in that same area, and they used to race midgets together you know, against one another. And Eddie Myers just wanted to beat my dad so bad, so Ray Brown would come over and he finally got in, because I guess my dad would put a chain across to keep people from coming in, except for the ones that he wanted. Otherwise, it, would, it was really everybody would come in. And, uh, and so uh, Ray tells the story that he was in there and he was saying something about, you know, Eddie Meyer made pretty good equipment. And then my dad came out of the office and just ordered it. He says, if you're going to talk like that, you get yourself out the door. And uh, Ray said, well, I never said that again, so I can maybe try to get back in his favors. But Alex Exidius, you know, we bought the, uh, the number 16 card uh, for vintage racing. Uh, the, the uh, Boss 302 at Fulmer Drove. Well, Fulmer uh, used to go over there. I didn't know this, but he used to go over there on his bicycle. And he'd hang on that chain just looking in and, and seeing that. Because there was always one or two midgets, even after my My dad in 1948 went back to one midget, uh, went back to the, the V860. And they, they, would, they would just hang out. Bob Peterson uh, would go over there. He didn't have a car. And he'd get parts from my dad to take back, and they had a page in these first magazines called Parts of Appeal, and it would be a gal hole in the manifold or whatever, whatever my dad would give him. And uh, you know, and later on, Bob Peterson made my dad his first catalog or helped him make it uh, because my dad was just hanging on the phone all the time. And then my dad mailed it across the country, and then he was really on the phone, and he asked Bob, "What in the heck are you going to do for me now?" And Bob said, "Advertise in my book." And uh, that's that's how that all started. So, well, there's a very he did, Bob Peterson did say that he had a difficulty convincing your father that advertising was really was a good thing. Your father's like, look, I just want to make machines. No, but well, everything was in Southern California, and my father didn't realize what was going on or starting to go on across. I'm sure he had indications of it through the midget racing and people contacting him, but. Uh, you know, once he made that catalog, and somebody could, it was only like that wide, about that high, and somebody could write in and he'd mail it back to him, uh, then, then uh, that just opened up the whole United States, what was going on, mainly down in the south. The guys were running race cars down there. They were, they were you know, in the late 40s, they were running uh, White Lightning and uh, Junior Johns. Johnson, that's how he became a friend of my father's, because he, he needed to go fast. And they blew the feds off so bad that 
the feds later found out what they were doing and they put the stuff in same stuff in their car and people like junior would come back to my dad and say okay now they're catching us now what are you going to do to keep us ahead of them and, and stuff like that but it it all kind of evolved it definitely all evolved out of southern california that was the nucleus and just like running at gilmore stadium uh but the, the indy drivers billy vukovich uh, walt faltner sam hanks they all raced there religiously on thursday night but they would go back and run Indy for the month of May. And when it was over, they'd come right back and start running on the West Coast and the main race they'd go to would, would, be, would be Gilmore. How did, give me an idea of how this sort of team, the Bobby Meeks, the Pearson brothers, the 2D, all of that, how did that come apart uh, about after the war? Um, and because I think, I get an understanding that it was a very tight, small group of people who were in Edelbrook's Well, the evolution of, of people like Bobby Meeks and that, uh, Bobby was, when he was 15, before the war, uh, was kind of on the streets and really didn't have anywhere to go, and he wandered into my father's place, and my father kind of adopted him and gave him a job and, you know, and, and took him on from there. Of course, he went in the service, and then he came back afterwards. But uh, Pearson brothers, uh, uh, Bob Pearson, his brother didn't work uh, of force, but Bob did. Worked for my dad, and when he had moved to Jefferson in 1948, worked in that building there, and my dad helped him build his car. Bobby Meeks helped uh, Bob Pearson build the car, and it was only a seven-inch high uh, windshield, but nobody said what the angle could be, so they had that thing really back slick to really get it low and make it a, a very efficient car. And people like Bill Likes and, uh, and uh, uh, Rossi, the spaghetti benders, they worked for my dad. Vince Rossi used to get so nervous when he raced that he would, he would be in the men's room about 50% of the time <laughs> because he'd get so nervous over everything. And uh, uh, so all that was there. And Don Waite uh, that ended up working for me, uh, he was there with his first flathead that my dad helped him with. And uh, of course, in, in Alex's case, uh, my father did supply both engines for his tank and, uh, and, and the engine for the, the streamliner that he and Dean Bachelor had uh, when they first got started. So, Can you just, just talk about that streamliner because it was such a, an important part of hot rodding history. It really drove up the, the record by, I think, 30 miles an hour over its Well, it was that, that car was extremely efficient. Uh, and as it ended up, it was too efficient because... Uh, your streamliner, you wanted to have them as slick as possible, but you didn't want them to fly. And when they, then when the car ended, it was at, at Daytona on the beach, and it got up and and took off, and then flipped over backwards, and that was the end of the car. But uh, at Bonneville, it was phenomenal. I mean, it was one of the first to break the 200 mile an hour uh, deal, and it was racing against uh, Kansas and Leslie that had started off with two engines, and here they, with one engine, would beat the two engines, and uh, so it was, uh, a lot of it was Dean Bachelor. He was very, very smart in that regard, and his design worked, and he really built a slick car without a wind tunnel. What kind of guy was, can you just describe to me Dean Bachelor? Uh, what kind of guy he was with his contribution to hot running? Um... Well, Dean, Dean was, again, a very intelligent guy, and uh, uh, except he kind of went the direction of being a writer for uh, you know, Hot Rod and, and, uh, and, the, and those magazines in those days. 
uh, and he was the driver of the uh, of that streamliner when it first started, and uh, uh, he did. I believe he got hurt in that car, and then they put it back together, and then it, it got got hurt in somebody else got hurt in it at Daytona. But Dean was was uh, really sharp. He was right into things that he was doing. After my dad passed away, Dean and I were were good friends. He'd come over and you know sit and talk. Uh, Dean did write a book just before he passed away about. Uh, about running in the dry lakes in Bonneville and all that, which is quite, quite good, and he, he really dove into it. I had some pictures in my archive that he came over and got and put in his book. So Dean was really a guy that uh, you enjoyed being around. Very, very intelligent, wrote excellent articles, and that was his uh, name to claim in, the, in our industry. Was there a sense of doing great things in 1946, 47? I mean, that you had the, the, the exhibit that bashed the Well, my dad, in his way, he was. He made cylinder heads for the flathead, and he made manifolds. One of the, one of the real things that happened was uh, one of the race drivers that he raced against, Eddie Haddad, uh, came by with a gallon of nitro that he got from the Dueling Brothers in Culver City that made these slot cars that was real serious competition. They raced against one another, and they got it from somebody because it was a rocket fuel that we were going to use when the war ended. And and my father got that from him, and he put it in the V860. And we were over in Jefferson when, when that happened, 1948-49. And I remember they put 10% in it, and they pulled the throttle. And it was a 200-horsepower Clayton Dino that almost broke the beam off. And uh, they all yelled and screamed and everything. But they never changed any of the jetting or the spark plugs when they put the 10% in. And so they went to shut it down. Everything was glowing red inside that engine. So it just kept right on running. And uh, they finally had to throw towels over the carburetors to get it to stop. And of course, by then, a lot of things were blue inside the engine. So they took it apart. They figured out that you needed more fuel. They needed a colder spark plug and, and to do it right. And so they put it together. And they later in that V860 ended up with 20%, which picked up 40% horsepower, which they knew what an off he ran because they had run one on methanol. So they knew they had more horsepower. They went to Gilmore Stadium, and that was the night that Roger Ward was driving for us. And beat the, beat the office was the only V860 to ever beat the office there. And everybody knew there was a problem because here's blue flame coming out the exhaust. Your eyes are watering, and you smell this funny, funny odor. And then it was really funny in the pits. And I, of course, I was too young to go in the pits. But my dad, you didn't have plastic fuel cans in. You just had Jeep cans from World War II. So he nickel-plated it because this stuff was really uh, potent, and it would eat through normal metal if you didn't cover it with something. So the nickel, he, he, he did that, nickel-plated it, and then he'd take four gallons in the Jeep can, then he'd take a, a, a gallon jar in a box, cardboard box, so nobody could see what was in there. And they would watch him, and he'd open up the Jeep can, and then he'd open up the cardboard box, open up the bottle, but not take the bottle out, and just turn it over and dump it into the Jeep can, and then take it all back and then shake the hell out of it and put it in the engine and it'd go out there and run fast, fast. And that was nitromethane. And that, that actually carried, carried on from that midget racing. Not only Roger beat him on, on Thursday night at, at Gilmore, beat him the next night at San Bernardino. And these guys were really going like this. And then 
then he got into putting it into the bigger uh, V8 flathead, and that ended up what was driven uh, Alex's tank that, that we were running 200 miles an hour against Ray Brown, but we had 40% in it, and we couldn't get the valves to lift in two runs, down and back. And we changed two nights in a row, we changed the valves, and we had a U-shaped motel, and we were all the way in the back. And so we'd park the cars behind the motel, and then we'd go to dinner, and of course realize I'm about 50 and they're starving me to death because I'm really growing. And we go in there, and we go into like we're going to bed, go through the bathroom, take the window and the screen out, go outside, and work on these cars till 4 o'clock in the morning. And of course the mosquitoes would all hang out inside that bathroom, and every time you went in there, man, they, had, they would really eat you up. But uh, when we got through the second day, that's when they said we're beat, and that was really the end of the flathead. But it was the nitro that carried as far as my father's record when he ran against the Cobb brothers with Fran Hernandez and Nanny's Coop. Uh, that was the reason they beat the Cobb brothers, because here's this real slick, uh, chopped and lowered uh, coupe with a blower on an engine. I mean, you didn't run it against a regular High Boy 32 with a column shift and expect to beat them. I mean, no way. But they didn't realize that uh, what my dad had was nitromethane in that engine. In fact, let's just set up that Galita race. Who was driving, who was involved, and the fuel, and how you, what your father's... Okay. Uh, the Galita race, Galita was said to be one of the first drag strips in the United States of America, and it wasn't really a drag strip, it was a marine base, and they just used a section of it that they could make a, a quarter mile pass on. And uh, evidently Tom Cobb, one of the Cobb brothers, was making remarks that, you know, could blow the doors off Vic Edelbrock's car and all that stuff. So it all went around and around, and pretty soon they arranged for a match race. And uh, here come the Cobb brothers with this chopped uh, you know, coupe, 32 coupe, I think it was. But I mean, it didn't really resemble that. All streamlined, had a blower on it, which, you know, what blower does to horsepower. And here is Fran Hernandez, 32 high boy. And a lot of people think Fran was driving, but he wasn't. It was Don Toll that worked for my dad. And had a column shift in it. And, and they're going to race one another, you know. Well, the Cobb brothers were kind of laughing a little bit until they had the, the race. And, the 32 high boy just went down and blew the doors off the Cobb brothers. And they come running over to my dad saying, whoa, 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 we got to have two out of three. My dad says, see ya. So they, he already planned it, told the guys. And they get done. They didn't have it on a trailer. They just towed it behind a pickup truck, hook it up, and we're out of here. And go down the street and have a hamburger and some beer. And uh, that's just what they did. And uh, it, it was great. And it was, it was something that really opened again, opened people's eyes. Like, what, what's in there? Because again, they could smell, they could see, and they could feel the sting in their eyes, so they knew something was in there. Um, and uh, you know, they tell me that Bobby Meeks was a real kind of, you know, instrumental with that fuel, using it out in the lakes and hiding it, and all his little secrets. And you know, um, can you also explain to me because the evolution of 2D and your your dad's involvement in that, and, and also the effect um, and reaction that people had to 2D. Of what now? 2D, the Pearson Brothers Coupe. Oh, the Pearson Brothers Coupe. Uh, and as I remember that, it was just a revolution. You know, the thing went there. And they didn't run nitro. It was just running methanol. And uh, they could go up there. The car was so slick and so well done that it was heads and heels above whatever 
whatever was up there. And, and that was it. And, and, and Bob Pearson and his brother, they, they ran, a, they ran a, a real nice program. Car was done well, clean. Bob Pearson, I don't think, ever took it to Bonneville because he didn't want to get the salt in it and, and that kind of thing. So uh, it was a lot of fun. And, and of course, at that time, Bob Pearson was working for my dad. So a lot of interaction stuff was going on. What, um, how competitive was it between people like uh, Eddie Meyer and Earl Evans and your dad? And, I mean, was it, you know? Well, it was very competitive between Myers and Evans and my dad. Eddie Myers, for instance, when, when Midgets, I know one story, and I, I was there. And my, uh, they run Midgets against. Walt Faulkner would drive for, uh, for Eddie Myers, and Peregrine would drive for my father. And we were out in front of the race, 30-lap main event, and my father's car had a problem and, 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 and didn't, you know, pulled it in. Eddie Meyer with Walt Faulkner had been out with their car, and Walt Faulkner knew that the oil pressure was going this way and the temperature was going that way. So he brought it in before it blew up. And uh, Eddie Meyer was so driven to beat my father that he put Walt back in the midget and sent him back out there to, just so he could beat Vic Edelbrock. And, of course, he only went about three or four laps, and boom, blew the engine up. They blew quite a few V860s up in those days. Uh, Earl Ev or Evans, they, they were people that uh, were flathead. They also had a tank, uh, and they were running against Alex uh, Exidius and his tank uh, at Bonneville, and they were always up there every year. So there was that competition going on. It was good, clean competition, and... and uh, uh, I don't know when Evans got into the nitromethane, and they did. Once the word was out, then almost everybody got into it. My father had a, had a kit where you could convert your Stromberg carburetors to run nitromethane, so it would take a lot of that guesswork out. What, what was your father doing? Um, how did your father influence Detroit, and, and were Detroit taking an interest in what people like your father were doing? Well, Detroit always looked down at what was going on out here. Uh, it's the old thing, if it's not born here, that was their rule. If it wasn't born in Detroit, they didn't really want to look at it. Uh, I think they were jealous because the people out here on the West Coast could do so many more things than they could back there. We could move quicker and, and have a lot more fun in what we did. Uh, I know in the late 50s, uh, Fran was working for us and then Fran left to do that that uh, go to work for Ford, and they did that around the world in, in a 60 day deal uh, this, because of the movie with the hot air balloon. Well, they did it with cars and took them around, and Fran ran that program. And, you know, Fran came back and visited us a couple times, and he says, You know, you guys are in trouble because we're going to go in and we're going to do this, this, and this, and we're going to, you know, kind of not maybe blow you off the map. Well, that never happened because we had the latitude we could always stay one step ahead. And actually what they did in getting, in getting some of those cars going, it just made the interest far greater for our kind of product and, and, and a lot more doors opened up. So uh, my father didn't do much with Detroit uh, because of that reason. And it went on for a long time and then uh, you know, finally, and after my father passed away in the late 60s, we made, we made a manifold for Chrysler that went on their, their six-pack car and uh, the, uh, the uh, Dodge and the, and the Plymouth. 
uh, Roadrunner, and uh, so that was one of our first things we opened up in there. And, and today, we do things for Detroit, and they, they, they listen to us, but the old, the old group that thought it's not born here kind of moved out, and uh, the newer group is, is looking to us uh, to help them, and we have helped them quite a bit. We're, we're the only uh, NASCAR manifold uh, manufacturer uh, in, the, in cup, bush, truck, uh, other than Ford, Chevy, uh, or yeah, Ford, GM, and, and, uh, and Chrysler. Uh, so we're the only other manifold that, that can be used out there. So that's kind of, that's kind of a feather in our cap to, that we're able to do that. Oh, that's huge, isn't it? I mean, that must be a huge part of your business in NASCAR, isn't it? Or not? Well, the, the, the reason you're in NASCAR is to create the image for the people underneath you that uh, run the Saturday night specials and stuff like that. That's very good. And the regular person that's a gearhead that goes out and sees that decal on the car and says, man, I'm putting that stuff on my car. Uh, so that's what we all work for. What, um, what was your, I mean, it's a big question, but what was your father's, was he a hot rodder through and through? Was he more of a just, did he see himself as a hot rodder at all? Oh, he was a hot rodder. I mean, he was 32, he used to race, street race at night, he'd never tell me that. But I, I heard some stories. He ended up in somebody's front lawn one time. And uh, uh, so, you know, that's what you did. Uh, there was no drag strip, so you all went out and ran somebody on the street. And of course, when they go to the dry lake beds, they'd camp, camp out up there and, and they'd have night racing. They weren't drag racing, but they were just running across the dry lake. Who could go faster than the other? Uh, so he was definitely a hot rodder. And, uh, he didn't really see, died in 62. Things were just starting to change over a little bit. And, and we were making, you know, he, he designed some manifolds for Corvette and, and stuff like that. Uh, but it really hadn't caught on yet. It didn't catch on until the mid 60s when the baby boomers started coming into our ranks uh, from World War II. And they were kids that, they are 16 years old and they wanted, they wanted a car and they wanted to put some of our stuff on it. And, it, and in that, of course, that could have been called hot rodding, but then it, it slowly evolved from hot rodding. Uh, early 70s, we had you know, the Clean Air Act, our mileage in the cars was terrible, and we could make something that would make the mileage better, we could make the car run better and still be mission illegal. Then it started bringing us over into the other side of the, other side of the fence. Right, yeah. Um, what, uh, we didn't talk about drag racing. Is there, is, how involved, what was your, was your father involved in, in drag racing or early drag racing? Well, he was, my father was involved uh, uh, in helping people. You know, um, he, uh, in 1955, had one of the first Thunderbirds and that picked up for him, my mother and I, in Denver. And he came back and he, he and Dick Jones, that used to be the uh, head tech guy for Champion, uh, chose each other off. Jones had a Thunderbird with a Paxton blower, and my dad was doing it normally aspirated, and they went back and forth. But my dad would, you know, work with people like Jazzy Nelson, and, and that that was one of our, our engines in there, and uh, and work with the with the guys very close. He saw that this was that this was coming on, and uh, was very involved with it uh, in in ways of making product for them to run and in ways of helping certain individuals uh, with their cars. And in what way, I've got two more questions. What, I know you've got to run, but. Um, no problem. 
you want your father in a, in a hundred years' time if someone were to describe Miguel Brock Senior and what his contribution was to hot rodding, not just hot rodding, but the automotive industry? How would you want to describe that to them? Well, I would say that my father was one of the first ones that, you know, took, got into this business and, and instead of it just being a hobby, made a business out of it. And he was one of the first ones to have a catalog that would go across the country where you could buy more than just Edelbrock products. You could buy a Winfield cam and you could buy a Herman Collins cam, JE pistons and a crank assembly, stroke crank assembly and a Schieffer, Paul Schieffer flywheel from San Diego. Uh, so he, he, was, he was driven in his doing what he did to make a business out of it, to make a profit and, and, and to do fairly well for himself. He was a man that made only a product that he would run on his car or run on his race car. He could take his roadster, and if he's running against somebody and they're using this, the same product he is, he, and they came back and said, there's something wrong here. That no, there's nothing wrong with the product. There's just something wrong somewhere else. Let's find out and get it fixed for you. Same thing with his V860. And he continued that all the way down to when he evolved into this small block Chevrolet in 1955. But he made product that he could stare you straight in the face and say, this does work. I'm fortunate that I, I listened to him and I saw what he did and I saw how important it is and we still carry that banner today. We make product that works. I run all the product that I make and if it's not right, I'm not gonna sell it. And if somebody's got a problem, I said, we, let's get down to the bottom of it because it does work and, and find out what, what you did wrong. And I think, uh, you know, and we're already 66 years now and another, another 35 uh, that it will be the 100 year mark for my father, I think, that he'll really be known for that. And we're, uh, we have a book coming out, the Edelbrock Made in USA, Edelbrock Made in USA. And, and that's one of the real things we talk about in there about him. Um, and my last question is, um, why does Bob Pearson call your father the big Indian? Why does he call him what? <laughs> well, my father, if you look at his pictures, uh, and, and of course doing this book would go back into the family uh, tree quite extensively, that uh, it was either his mother, his mother's uh, father or mother was, was all Indian. And if you looked at my dad, I mean his hairline and everything, he really, that Indian came right through. And uh, none of the other brothers got that. So that's why Bob called him the big Indian. I was just wondering, because I was interviewing him, and he kept going, yeah, the Indian would tell us to do this and that. <laughs> I said, well, well, I don't want to sort of... Uh, but um, is, there, you know, is there anything else? I mean, you know, there's a ton of stuff. I know you're... you're uh, Pardon? I, there's a ton of stuff to ask you about your father, but um, let me just ask you one more question. Where, where do you think hot rodding... How do you think hot rodding should be viewed... Um, as, an, as, as a part of American culture? I mean, what importance does it have? It's, it's, it's great importance. In, in America, it's, 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 it's the love affair of the automobile. It's the freedom to do what they want to their car, as long as it's safe and that. And, and to have that as their identity. Today, street rods are identity to the family that owns it and uses it. And uh, hot rodding started all that. Hot rodding in the early days when there was, you know, it was a very, very small group, but it was the identity of that man that had that 32 Roadster that ran it on the street and was able to 
beat, you know, three fourths of the cars that he raced, and uh, and that that identity, that love affair of the automobile, which America strongly has today, is something that we'll we'll never lose. Hot rodding was was the uh, the thing that really made it happen. It was extraordinary because the people hot rodding was a dirty word. It used to be a dirty word. Well, to those, hot rodding to those that didn't know was a dirty word. The people that were involved in it, it wasn't. Um, you know, I had, when I became president of SEMA in 71, we were a dirty word because we were hot rodders and we, they, we were pictured as being in buildings with dirt floors and pulling everything off the car that was legal and making it ridiculous. And we had to show them where we were and what we were doing and how we were doing. And, and we've been working on that for a long time now, and we've showed them quite a bit, and we are not a dirty word anymore. When you, when you see today uh, a street rod event, and there might be 5,000 cars there, and there's 5,000 families there, and, and, the, and the son and the daughter are all there with their parents, and they're working on that car. They clean it with a Q-tip underneath it to get it ready to be judged. And what is it? Would you rather have them doing that, or would you rather have them out on the street? It's not a dirty word. It's something that's a viable part of this country and always will be. The Americans have got to have something to, to identify themselves with, and fortunately for us in this business, the automobile is a big part of that. Well, all right, folks, there you have it. Uh, we sure do hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Rodcast with our very special guest, Vic Edelbrock, Jr. We want to thank Vic for giving of his time and sharing some great memories and insight that really could only come from someone who was there and, and who saw the birth of hot rodding as it was happening. Um, again, we, we thank Vic and his family for everything they've done for our beloved hobby and our sport. And even though it will probably take the perspective of future generations to truly see the scope of what Vic and his father accomplished, uh, there's no doubt to all of us at this time just how important the Edelbrock name is in the world of hot rodding. Um, I mean, they're nearly synonymous, Edelbrock and hot rodding. Um, and, you know, we'd like to thank you guys, uh, the listeners who are tuning into each episode and helping to support what we're doing here. We had the great privilege to meet so many of you who attended this most recent Race of Gentlemen event in New Jersey. And uh, we just want to thank you for coming by, saying hello, and reminding us that there are many people out there who care about this history and, like us, don't want to see it forgotten. And uh, while I'm at it, uh, many of the people who we met this year at Wildwood were there with amazingly cool hot rods and and we're wringing them out like dish rags. Uh, it was fantastic. Uh, seeing and hearing those creations was, was the thing that really made the weekend for us. And based on the level of enthusiasm that was on display there, uh, this thing called hot rodding is not going anywhere anytime soon. So uh, thanks to you folks out there uh, who are living it and who are keeping the tradition alive. Uh, special thanks today and always to our announcer, Larry Babb, and all our staff here at Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood. Our PR person is Angela Helton, 
and our social media directing comes from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance comes from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And our theme song, as always, is by me. Uh, Special thanks, always, to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who's really doing the hard work. Uh, The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Steve and Carol Mamishian. Without their generosity and passion for preserving the history of hot rodding, none of this would be possible. So if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please check us out on our website, ahrf.com. We're also on Instagram. Uh, We have a great Facebook page that gives you daily updates and uh, daily pieces of history. Um, Keeps you up to date on all things happening in and around the foundation, the work that's going on, and upcoming episodes of the Rodcast. Um, You can also sign up for our mailing list, receive updates and news on our ongoing quest to promote and preserve the history of hot rodding and land speed racing. And uh, that's about it. Uh, We really do appreciate it. Thank you again for listening. And my name is David Steele. And we hope you'll tune in again next time for another episode of The Rodcast.